Hello, you are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. In My Silence by Cat Eyes 224 on AO3. Rating Mature. She loses him somewhere in the kitchen department, letting him disappear from her line of sight while she lingers, waylaid by a particularly handsome backsplash, which they absolutely do not need. She reasons after three solid minutes of arguing with herself before finally moving on. But she's been wanting to update the kitchen since they first bought the house. Bullet-riddled drywall, she figures, is as good an excuse as any. And their ridiculously expensive homeowner's policy is apparently finally going to pay off. So they may as well take advantage. By the time Scully wanders over to the dining area to check out the table they'd picked out together online, she knows Mulder has probably given up on trying to find her. He stubbornly refuses to backtrack at Ikea, claiming it only gets him more turned around. And despite his alleged accrual of Indian guide merit badges, the proof of which Scully has yet to see, he scoffs at conventional wilderness survival skills like staying put and waiting for help to come to him whenever he gets lost. They'd agreed in the car ahead of time to meet up at the cafe on the second floor if they got separated. So Scully starts heading that direction. She immediately suspects ulterior motives. Mulder has once again managed to plan this outing to take place around dinner time, and Scully assumes that his timing is calculated so that he can satiate his unaccountable love of Swedish meatballs. Meandering through a maze of living room and bedroom furniture, Scully consciously quells the urge to quicken her pace when she finds herself walking past bunk beds and brightly colored children's rooms, college corner desks and bins of extra long twin bed sheets. William would be looking at colleges this year, wouldn't he? Studying for his SATs. Maybe courting college scouts for water polo or basketball or baseball. Or maybe he'd be an academic in math league or on the debate team or winner of the state fair. Or maybe he'd been a thespian. Or maybe he'd been a loner. Or, or, or. Next to a wall of framed mirrors, Scully closes her eyes against row upon row of her own fractured reflection and breathes deeply through her nose, trying to banish the onslaught of potential iterations of her son as quickly as they appear. Fifteen years later, and he is still every dark-haired, long-limbed boy she sees out of the corner of her eye until she dares to look twice. William has never stopped being a residual image that appears, Turin-like, in every negative space in her meticulously constructed world. But Scully has learned to allow herself to feel the ebb and flow of both her guilt and her gratitude in these moments. Cognitive dissonance, if nothing else, at least drowns out all the other voices in her head. The ones that whisper about what she did to Mulder when she left him to wrestle with their own ghosts all alone in their drafty old house, instead of what she did to William when she gave him away to a future without her, perilous and uncertain. She cannot, however, stop herself from intentionally averting her gaze when she passes by the children's play area just outside the Ikea cafe, where a very pregnant mother is loudly compromising with her young son for just five more minutes, and then it's time to go. Scully squeezes her eyes shut as a woman cradles her swollen belly with one hand and digs the other into the small of her back. 
Some reminders still hurt more than others. She spots Mulder near the front of the line, cue to order, and is just about to call out to him when another voice beats her to the punch. Mulder? Fox Mulder. Mulder turns to the source of the voice, a woman standing several people behind him in line, and Scully sees him quirk a smile of recognition that reaches all the way to his eyes. She freezes, watching the interaction unfold from a distance with an almost clinically detached interest. Mulder's social circle, she knows, has dwindled over the years to just a handful of people, mostly acquaintances. As she racks her brain to place this woman, Scully realizes with a pang of regret that she has comprised the bulk of that handful for the last decade or more, and, until recently, she had been doing her level best to leave Mulder behind. She notices the blonde woman's hair first, a lustrous mane that falls in golden weaves around slender tan shoulders, not a hint of gray, Scully discerns, biting her lips so hard it nearly bleeds. Mulder lets the few people between them go in front of him until he and the mystery woman are standing next to each other in line. He crosses his arms as they begin to converse, and Scully flushes hotly as she takes note of a typical Mulder maneuver where he dips his head and leans into her space so that he can hear her better. At one point, the woman turns into him to allow the person behind her to go ahead, and Scully catches a glimpse of her profile. A deep dimple appears in the woman's cheek as she laughs at something Mulder says. The two must reach a mutual decision to just order their food together because they finally approach the same register to pay separately. They then head over to a nearby table where a bored-looking blonde boy of about six or seven in a baseball uniform is sitting. Making her way closer, Scully takes in the woman's tall, fit figure and makeup-free face. She has a wide, easy smile which she unabashedly flashes up at Mulder as they continue talking. As Scully nears, she begins to hear snippets of conversation. Eb's little brother is already outgrowing the toddler bed, so we're here looking at bunk beds. The boys are really excited about the idea of bunk beds, aren't you, Caleb? Caleb smiles tightly and nods, obliging his mother, and throws his small fist into a baseball glove a few more times. Mulder bends down, muscular arms resting lightly on his bent knees, looking up into the boy's eyes. Some place deep within Scully's chest starts to ache. The twinge, old and familiar. Mulder has always been wonderful with children. He's always given due difference to their personhood, no matter their age. It was one of those things about him that Scully had always thought would have made him a wonderful father. What position do you play, Caleb? She hears Mulder ask. Caleb's little boy voice is swallowed by a cacophony of knives and forks clinking against plastic plates and soda machines spitting ice into cups, and Scully finds herself leaning forward slightly as she continues towards their table, straining to hear. Learn how to pitch. Mulder nods and glances up at the boy's mother before meeting Caleb's eyes again. You know, I pitched a couple of years. I used to be good at curveballs and change-ups, but you're going to have to practice a lot if you want to be a pitcher. You think you can do that? Caleb nods down at Mulder, solemn. The woman tugs gently at the bill of her son's baseball cap. I can't keep him away from the baseball diamond, and if he's not there, he wants to be at the batting cages. Mulder's smile widens. I was the same way when I was his age. Scully sees the woman's eyes sweep over her partner's frame appreciatively. Yeah, I'm sure. K 
Caleb stares at Mulder now with naked admiration. Who's your favorite pitcher? Mine's Zach Britton. Mulder chuckles. Britton's pretty good. I'm a Yankees fan myself, so I'm liking Sabrino these days. The boy wrinkles his nose. Ew, the Yankees? Traitor. Mulder and the woman both laugh. Well, maybe one day. His mother cocks her head, biting her lip as she glances between her son and Mulder. Mulder here can show you how to throw a curveball, Caleb. Mulder chuffs as he rises, crossing his arms even more tightly across his broad chest as a deep flush creeps over his features. I'd probably end up in the hospital if I tried to throw a curveball these days, Annie. Oh, I don't know, Annie says, reaching a tentative hand out and wrapping it around Mulder's bicep. You look like you're in pretty good shape to me. Scully's done observing, quickens her pace and plasters a smile on. Mulder, she says, still several feet away. Here you are. Mulder startles, jerking his arm from Annie's grasp. Scully, hey, this is, uh, you remember right, Annie. Anne Woodward. She was, uh, she was. A look of dawning comprehension flits its way over Annie's face as she gauges Mulder's stammering reaction with Scully's sudden appearance. Annie glances down at Mulder's left ring finger, and then Scully's, before she brings her eyes back up to Scully's. Subtle, Scully thinks. No, I don't think I've had the pleasure, she says instead, smiling wide, but barely unable to unclench her teeth. The woman is even more stunning up close, glowing jade green eyes and full lips, gorgeous body. Jesus. Scully holds her hand out. I'm Dana. Annie reaches out to shake it firmly. Agent Scully, I know. You probably don't recognize me, but I was at Agent Mulder's house last weekend. I'm an investigative technician with the Bureau. I was part of the team mobilized to collect evidence after the Pearly incident last week. She drops Scully's hand. Crazy stuff. Combing her memory through the multitudinous faces and comings and goings of all the investigators that had torn their house apart for almost 48 hours, Scully thinks she might remember a blonde ponytail poking out of an FBI cap, gathering evidence. Scully had been in and out of their house herself during those few days, giving multiple statements to multiple agencies, appearing before a review panel. Right. Thanks for your help on that, Scully says. Agent Mulder's house, she emphasizes, is quite literally a disaster, as you know. So I told him I'd help him pick out some replacement furniture. And I owe him a table. Mulder's brow furrows. He starts to interject, but Scully shoots him a pointed glance. His mouth slams shut, but the confused crease in his forehead deepens. Just then, Annie's order number is called, then Mulder's. Scully makes a show of looking at her watch, clearing her throat. Mulder, I'll just get the stuff from the warehouse and meet you at the car, okay? You can drop me off at my place, on your way home. Scully turns and walks away before he has a chance to respond. She throws one last glance over her shoulder and swallows past the lump that rises in her throat as Annie beams up at Mulder. Scully nearly bumps right into the pregnant mother, still arguing with her obstinate son as she stumbles towards the elevators. As she waits for Mulder in the car, the silence humid and thick, Scully's mind calls to instance when she was quite young, perhaps 10 or 12 years old, when her mother had driven her daughters to the coast after picking them up from school one afternoon. Maggie had stared out the windshield at the crashing surf until Melissa had finally asked her what they were doing there. Maggie had blinked, glanced in the rearview mirror, and confessed to her daughters that she was jealous. 
She was jealous of the sea for the sway it held over her husband. As a girl, Scully had been stunned and had said as much. She was surprised at her mother's confessing such a thing, for wasn't envy one of the seven deadly sins? No, Dana, her mother had explained with a sad smile as she turned her gaze away from her daughter and back to the blue-green curve of the horizon. Jealousy and envy are not the same thing. Envy is when you covet something of someone else's that doesn't belong to you. Jealousy is longing for what's already yours. It had taken years, but in the cabin of Mulder's pickup, waiting for him to amble out of the store, Scully finally thinks she understands the distinction. Apart from herself, Scully knows, Mulder has led such a loveless existence. But hasn't she also done her best, even unwittingly, to ensure that his histrionic cycle of love and loss just keeps going ad infinitum? Maybe Mulder has come to believe that a life with Scully is what he has earned, part of his unending doomed lot in life, to be loved by a woman who was not supposed to be able to bear him any children, to be loved by a woman who was destined to give him an impossible son, only to give him away. Scully is startled out of a reverie when Mulder opens the driver's side and slams it behind himself. He lets the silence stretch in the cab before speaking. What the fuck was that, Scully? You tell me, she answers, hating how petulant she sounds. Scully. Mulder's voice is low, dangerous. He twists the keys in the ignition with a jerk of his wrist and pulls out of the parking space. Come on, you know me better than that. Scully doesn't respond. Does she know better? She and Mulder hadn't really talked about where things were headed between them after the terrorist attack at the Ziggurat in Texas. She started staying over at the house with him more and more since her latest hospital stay after her bout of unexplainable seizures. Remembering the surprising new heft of Mulder above her, the way he had used their bed frame to leverage the angle of his thrusts, his head between her legs that very morning. She certainly knew where Mulder had been hoping things were heading. But Scully had always doubted whether Mulder's known what's in his best interest, especially when it came to her. For her part, she hates herself for needing him as much as she does. He is her fatal flaw, her Achilles heel, the forbidden fruit that has been her undoing. You'd think she'd have learned her lesson by now. But here she is, 25 years later, still waging war with herself over him, holding him at arm's length with one hand while drawing him closer with the other. Mulder has pulled onto the highway before he starts talking again. There's a plaintiveness in his voice that Scully can't remember hearing in years, not since they first started working together. It burns, hearing him trying to convince her of something she knows shouldn't be plausible, but probably is. Annie and I got to talking when she was at the house. She saw my bat and glove in the corner and asked if I was coaching Little League or something. Annie. Annie is tangible, attainable and obviously more than willing. She could probably still give Mulder another child, a little sister for her two boys. Scully refuses to respond, allows the silence to unspool, become uncomfortable. Mulder struggled to fill the void, like he always does. I just... I told her I liked baseball, and we got to talking about Caleb and how... Mulder, I think this was a mistake. Mulder quiets. He stares at her profile. Okay, fine, we'll go to Pottery Barn. That's not what I meant, and you know it. Scully looks out the windshield. She can feel the phantom pressure of Mulder's jaw clenching and unclenching. I think, she begins, glancing at him 
and pressing on when Mulder closes his eyes. I think we may be rushing back into this for the wrong reasons. No, Scully. No, she asks, turning fully in her seat to look at him, incredulous. No? When have we not been the worst possible option for one another? Scully, where is this coming from? Mulder practically shouts at her. Are you PMSing or something? I'm perimenopausal, Mulder, she retorts. And maybe it's time you start thinking about why we're even together in the first place and why we keep continuing to be together when it brings us nothing but heartache. Mulder lets another half-mile pass before he speaks again, and the gravel in his voice scrapes her heart raw. Are you really that unhappy with me? He asks quietly, taking the turnoff towards her place. Are you really that happy we're together? Scully asks. Or are you just less miserable because you're not all alone by yourself? That doesn't even make sense, Scully, Mulder yells, slapping a hand against the steering wheel. Could you just stop being stubborn for a moment, Mulder? She implores. Just divorce yourself completely from the idea of you and me and think about it. Could you be happy with someone like Annie? Raising a family, having little boys to play catch with, someone to teach how to throw a curveball, a wife who actually stands a chance of getting pregnant again. Her heart feels like it's withering in her chest. Atrophied after so long without him and weary from trying so hard to hold on to what it was about him that made him so irreplaceable. But this is where she's always failed, where he has succeeded. Mulder has a knack for loving the memory of someone unconditionally, in spite of the many ways they've let him down. He pulls up to the sterile, ridiculously overpriced townhouse that she insisted on maintaining since she moved out. It's in a gentrified part of D.C., an industrial park that has been modernized, and she knows Mulder hates it, even though he's never said a thing about it. He slams on the brakes so hard that she winces when they screech. Mulder throws the car in park and stares out the windshield, refusing to look at her. I know the difference between losing people and watching them leave Scully. Scully stares at his profile. The strong line of his jaw has softened over the years, but it's no less dear to her now than it was decades ago, shadowed by a five o'clock stubble and the sherbet-colored light filtering in from the street lamps half a block away. I'll see you tomorrow, Mulder, she whispers, and she's out of the passenger seat, slamming the door of the trunk and turning the lock of her own place in less than 30 seconds without sparing a second glance behind her. He's been watching her leave for years, she figures. As the automated front door beeps shut behind her, she leans into it, inviting the small measure of pain when she lets her skull thud against the hardwood. The sound of his truck idling lingers until he finally puts the car in reverse and crunches back down the driveway giving her the space he knows she needs. One more night won't kill them. If you like this story and would like to contribute, you can do so by going to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash audio fanfic pod. As a patron, you are granted early access to one new story of your choosing per month. Thank you for listening. And remember, the stories are out there.